Good evening, Great Vic. It's really great to be with you on a blustery evening. Um, we'll try not to be too distracted by, by the wind. We'll see how it goes. Um, as parents, uh, my wife and I will often look at our small children and we'll wonder what their lives will be like. Uh, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Even if you're not a parent, if you're around kids at all, you know exactly what I mean. You look at uh, the personality of a child or, or the things that they enjoy and you make guesses uh, about their future. You know, you'll hear very proud parents say things like, oh, my, my daughter's so smart, you know, she'll be an engineer one day or a doctor or, you know, my, my son's so athletic and so sporty, uh, he'll definitely be, you know, the best football player around, right? Uh, parents do this um, all the time. Well, somewhat similarly, what we're going to see in our passage this evening is a father looking at his sons, in this case his very grown sons, and making uh, something of predictions about their future. However, what we'll see is it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than we just as parents looking to our kids and kind of knowing what their life will be like based on their past. Uh, there's something of a, of a divine uh, intention in Jacob's words to his sons. Something of the, the storyline of God's people, and, and we could even say of prophecy. And this prophecy of, of God's people, as if you were paying attention while we were reading, it's not just of blessing, it's of sin and of hardship and a tendency that, that people have to be unstable, unstable as water, as he says. But amidst all the hardship and all the pain that Jacob acknowledges, he also has this beautiful promise, doesn't he, of, of an offspring, one who will come from the tribe of Judah. Pictures of, of one who would come to put an end to this kind of pain and suffering and hardship, a, a, a Messiah, a king, a promised one who'd never fail, like we're, we're going to see a lot of failing here in a second, who would never sin, but would bless the world with his coming. What I want us to, I'll kind of lay my cards out here on the table. What I, what I want us to see here in this passage is Jesus. I want us to see Christ. So I think that uh, the main point of this passage this evening, if you're a note taker, the main point of our passage is this. Despite our sin, God sends a king. Despite our sin, God sends a king. And we'll break down our passage this evening into two big sections. The reality of sin and the promise of blessing through a king. So the reality of sin and the promise of blessing through a king. So point number one, the reality of sin. So just, just a reminder of where we're at in the story. Uh, any of you who were here uh, last week, if, if, you, if you weren't, uh, Shane had walked us through, right? Uh, Jacob is, is kind of at the end of his life here, right there in Egypt. He uh, is lying on his deathbed, this old blind man. He's blessing, he just blessed his grandsons, Joseph's sons, in the previous 
chapter, and we're picking up this evening of this kind of continuation of this scene or this type of scene. He's, he's laying on his deathbed, and he's giving out blessings, but these time, this time to his sons, not his grandsons. So look there at the beginning of his passage. He starts off by saying, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So it's important to note here, as I kind of alluded to earlier, uh, this, is, this is more than just kind of Jacob guessing about his sons. It's really important uh, that we see this. This is more than just a father kind of hoping uh, or, or kind of predicting. This language actually of gather, assemble, listen, it, it's words we see all throughout scripture before a prophecy is given. There's a spiritual aspect to what Jacob is saying here, not just the immediate context of his sons. And what's a bit jarring is, what does he immediately start out with? It's not very positive things, is it? It's something of a curse, we could say. He starts off by pointing out the sin of his oldest sons. How foolishly they lived their lives and how that will kind of ruin their descendants going forward. This is, I've titled this section, The Reality of Sin. Before we can get to the beautiful kind of promise of a coming king, we're pointed to the reality of the sinful and broken world that we live in. Uh, the late uh, R.C. Sproul, a well-known pastor and theologian, has this famous quote that I've always liked, which is, uh, the gospel isn't good news unless you know the bad news. And it, it seemed like Jacob knew something of that as he's giving these promises. The, the good news that we'll get to is better when it's framed in the reality of the bad news. So before we can get to the blessing of a king, let's just sit back for a second and acknowledge the weight of sin and the fallen world that we live in as Jacob speaks to his oldest sons here. So first, he has these words to Reuben. So in verse 3, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and, you and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So what's Jacob talking about here? Uh, if you're like me, when, you were <laughs> when I first read this passage, I needed a, a, a jog of my Old Testament memory, my Genesis story memory. Uh, to remember what Jacob is talking about here. Well, he's referring to a scene back before we kind of started our sermon series uh, in Genesis 35. So what happens is uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies. And then uh, in, in Genesis 35, 22, we read one verse. This is all that Jacob's talking about, a, a whole story that's just one verse in the Bible. And he says, when, it says, when Israel lived in that land... Reuben went to lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Okay, so you might be thinking, okay, that doesn't sound great, but why, what's the big deal? Like, why is Jacob bringing up 
what, what we have in our Bible as just one little verse at the very end of his life on his deathbed, right? Reuben's the firstborn, after all. He, he says he has a place of preeminence, or at least he should. This is a, a really serious sin that, that Reuben committed. In fact, it's so heinous that this is basically a, a type of incest. The, the, the pagan world even around the, the people of Israel would have looked in on this sin as a heinous sin. That's how bad it was. And, and so uh, Jacob, in, in kind of giving these promises to his children, acknowledges that this is going to ruin Reuben and his line for, for all generations. Jacob says that his oldest son was supposed to be the, the chosen one, right? Preeminent in stature in his family, but he was unstable as water, so he forfeit his right to this preeminence. Of course, this is something we've seen, we saw even last week, right, with uh, Joseph's sons, something we've seen already in Genesis many times, the oldest son being passed over, God subverting our expectations about who gets blessed and who doesn't get blessed. We think, especially they would have thought, right? We think it should be the oldest, right? He, he deserves it. And yet here God is saying, no, I'm not going to give it to him. Okay, Simeon and Levi. So next, Jacob moves on to these next oldest brothers. So we're, we're, uh, he, he lumps Simeon and Levi together. And he says in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their uh, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Again, really strong words here, isn't it? Again, this this is pointing back to something that already happened in the book of Genesis, back in chapter 34. There's this story of uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, Simeon and Levi's sister, and Dinah was, was taken by this pagan prince and defiled, and this pagan prince was essentially obsessed with her. And he he was infatuated with her, wanted to marry her, so he's begging uh, Israel and his sons to marry the the daughter. And so Simeon and Levi are so infuriated by this sin of this pagan prince that they go to his father and to him, and they say, they, they trick him. They say, oh, okay, uh, you, you can marry her if you circumcise everybody in your kingdom. And this prince is, is so obsessed with Dinah that he thinks this is a pretty good deal. So they do. And when everybody is, is understandably uh, decommissioned for a while because of their being circumcised, Simeon and Levi go in and they slaughter everybody. And not only that, they plunder their children and their livestock and their wealth and their wives. I mean, and Jacob, right after this, Jacob just, oh, he's, he's furious. And, and he, he sees that this is just going to be a, a big problem for forever. This was a, another just 
wicked sin, heinous sin, a disregard for human life by Simeon and Levi. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because it was wrong for these pagan rulers to take their sister. That wasn't right. But what we see here is that them taking matters into their own hands to deceive and to wickedly murder and brutally kill was also sinful. You know, I think it's easy maybe to look at sins like this or these stories and just think, like, I could never do that. Like, you're naming, like, the worst things ever. Murder, incest, like, that's the the worst of the worst. But let's not be tempted to skip over what Jacob is telling us as he curses these three oldest brothers. I wonder, what are these two stories of Jacob's and, and Jacob's severe words to his son, what, what do they teach us about the severity of even our own sin? The sin that we are tempted toward. Like Reuben, maybe we think that we have a place of prominence in some way. Maybe we think that because of our prominence, we should get what we're owed. Maybe in our job or in our family or among our friends we we're kind of the people that want to get our way we feel like we should be allowed to get things because of who we are you know whatever that means after all we we often view ourselves as as preeminent don't we there's something that uh, is going on a lot in modern social media people will say I'm the main character or or, uh, something like that Uh, everybody kind of views themselves as the main character in their life Uh, As a lot of you know, I I went to Bible college and then I went to seminary in the States. And one of the things that that you'll often hear, or at least I've heard from kind of supposedly well-theologically educated people is, you should listen to me because I went to seminary. Or what I have to say is important because I went to Bible college. And sometimes those same people who are on paper, credentialed at seminary or Bible college or whatever, maybe they themselves aren't living by the fruit of the Spirit. It's people who should have preeminence in some way in the church. They have the credential. They should have the right to speak, but they forfeit that right to speak by their lack of faithfulness. Church, in the same way, we cannot rest on our own abilities or places of prominence. You may think that the world around you or even the church doesn't see your sin, but like Reuben, your sin will find you out. You you can't just think because of who you are. Again, whatever that means to you, you know what that means. You can't just think whoever, because, oh, I am who I am, that your sin won't come back to haunt you. You can't think... Well, I I have a place of preeminence in the church because of my position or because of the ministries that I serve on. And so that that, that kind of, you know, it doesn't really matter what I do. Well, if Reuben is any example, again, it's a reminder, that's just not how God works. You can't think, uh, oh, I'm, I'm successful at work, so I know that I neglect my kids and I neglect my wife, but... 
I'm the, I'm the most preeminent guy at work. Again, you can't rest on your place of prominence and sweep sin under the rug in the meantime. Or think of Simeon and Levi. After all, these pagan rulers, what, what they did to Dinah was terrible, wasn't it? The, the brothers were right in some sense to be infuriated with the situation, yet, what is it? It's, it's the way that they responded. It was heaping more sin, more sin, more sin on the situation. Over and over again, God tells us, we can't repay evil for evil, right? But don't we, aren't we tempted to that all the time, even in our own lives, right? What are the ways that, that we often justify sinful attitudes, maybe, that we have towards other people because we're being sinned against? Maybe you think that, uh, you know, your, your angry outbursts at work or with your family are justified because, you're, after all, they're being mean to me. They're sinning against me. Maybe you think that because other Christians have sinned against you that you can't get close to anyone else. You can't share your life with anyone because you've been burned in the past. Brothers and sisters, Jacob's words to Simeon and Levi teach us something about the human condition. And it's that we're prone to, to think that two wrongs make a right. But they don't. They just lead here to sin and destruction. We're not allowed to respond to sin with more sin. Think of, think of our own Lord's words, right? To forgive those who've sinned against us. That if someone asks for your cloak, to give him your shirt also. We're people of forgiveness. And of course, we're, we're a people of forgiveness because we have been forgiven in the gospel. And that brings us nicely to point number two, the promise of blessing through a king. The promise of blessing through a king. Again, so up until this point, it's, it seemed pretty bleak, right? These very, very serious stories, these very serious words that Jacob gives to his sons should prompt us to look at the ways that we fall short of God's standard Thank goodness the passage keeps going, right? So after addressing these three older brothers, Jacob turns to Judah. Now, uh, for those of you who know your Bible well, or for those of you who have been following along with the sermon series, um, this might come as somewhat of a surprise. I mean, Judah has exhibited just as much sin as these other brothers, hasn't he? He... he, he uh, <laughs> was just as, as sexually sinful as Reuben. He was, had the same disregard for life as Simeon and Levi and his sins with Tamar. Remember, he, he didn't take good care of her, and he also committed uh, adultery with her. Judah, like us, is far from perfect. It's a reminder, of, again, of how broken and sinful the world can be. And we'll get to, to Judah's turnaround here in a second. Of course, we, we know that that's not the end of Judah's story. But, but just for a second, again, think of how big of a deal then this blessing is to Judah. Because we know these negative things 
uh, about all these other brothers. We know the negative things about Judah. And yet, one of the fullest promises, one of the most beautiful kind of initial blessings of Christ's coming is given to this, this guy who messed up a lot and who messed up badly. Jacob prophesies that one will come from Judah's line who, who will be like a lion, whose hand will be on the neck of his enemies, who will rule with a scepter, who will command the obedience of the people. You know, there's a lot of um, modern biblical scholars out there, critical scholars who just can't make sense of what's going on here. They, they can't figure it out. Why, why would Jacob be saying these things about Judah's tribe? But again, I told you from the beginning, just no secret. I think this is talking about Christ. You know, as Christians, we know in God's sovereignty, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the lion. Christ is the one who will come and rule with a scepter. Christ is the one who will judge the nations. So think about, think about then what we've been talking about, right? All, all this sin, all this suffering. So here, amidst sin, wickedness, the harshness of the world, we get this promise of a king. One who will, despite all of these things, make everything right. And when we think about Christ as king, right, that should just immediately point us to the gospel, right? That despite our own sin, God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This passage is teaching us, how, how do we live in light of a broken world? How do we live in light of this suffering? How do we respond to it? And Jacob says, look to the king. Look to the one who is to come, who will right all wrongs. And just an aside, how beautiful is it for us as modern day Christians? Jacob's sons would have had to look forward to this king. We get to look back. We know him. We, we have records of his life. We, Simon just read one a little bit ago. He's come to us. He's already transformed our lives. We continue to, to see the promise and, and blessing uh, that Jacob uh, gives in the blessing of Joseph as well. Look, look down with me at um, verse 22. It says, Joseph is a, a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. There's an obvious kind of picture here, right? As, as we've been following along in the life of Joseph, um, this, is, this is clear in, in Joseph's life, right? That he was sinned against over and over and over again, and yet overall he, he responds uh, unmoved, right? His, his bow is unmoved. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's almost kind of the opposite of uh, what was happening with Simeon and Levi, right? They were sinned against. They respond in kind, Joseph is sinned against, and he doesn't. He doesn't retaliate. Can you think of, of anyone else uh, in Scripture who was gravely sinned against and didn't retaliate? Who was wickedly abused and, and scorned and yet didn't respond 
in kind. One who, in fact, said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Even the life of Joseph should keep pointing us to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was mocked and scorned and put on the cross, and and we could say of him, right? Archers bitterly attacked Christ. They shot at him. They harassed Christ severely, and yet Christ's bow remained unmoved. Jacob is not, again, just pointing us to the reality of his sons. He's pointing us to a greater reality, one who would come and who would perfectly fulfill all of these things. It would be helpful, I think, for us to even put these, these two blessings, right, Judah and, uh, and Joseph, together as, as we think about Christ, as, as we think about the gospel, right? Because, again, the gospel subverts our expectations, doesn't it? Je- Joseph's blessing is a little more obvious, right? Joseph is really honorable. Uh, he's like the main character of the story. Judah's blessing isn't as obvious. It's worth asking, if Judah's life was marked by sin and selfishness, why does he, why does he get this great promise? Why doesn't Joseph get it? Why was it that Christ's line would come from this one, whose life was so battered and broken by sin? Well, I, I think because the story of Judah is the gospel. Jacob's blessing to him here is giving him what? It's giving him Christ. Our life before Christ was like Judah's, wasn't it? We're dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet, the Lord looked to us undeserving of any grace at all. And he saved us. We've lived lives with the same sins as Reuben and Simeon, and Levi, and Judah. And yet, God gave us a promise, didn't he? He gave us his son. Remember, Judah's life, though marked by sin, also was a transformed life. It was marked by a change of heart. He, he, he laid down his life for Benjamin, remember? It, he went from the selfishness that we saw before It's all about me to selflessness as he lays down his life for Benjamin. Now, we might be tempted to kind of think of that and say, oh, maybe that was just like Judah's, this blessing is like Judah's reward for being a good person. You know, he he messed up, but then he was a good person, and so God decided to bless him. But if we're not careful, I think that impulse can miss the gravity of what is going on here. Judah's transformation wasn't just because he decided one day to be a good person. That's not the gospel. How did Judah go through such a transformation? Well, we have to say, don't we? The Lord changed his heart. The Lord saved him. By God's grace, Judah was redeemed and began living a life of faith instead of trusting in his own abilities. Think of God's words to Abram, right? 
when he told him that it wasn't anything he had done that made him righteous. It was believing in God's promises, right? Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what Judah's blessing points us to. Not our own goodness, but the goodness of God. Not our own ability to earn blessing of Christ, but God's promise to give us blessing despite ourselves. Judah was given the promise of Christ despite his sin, just like we are given the promise of Christ despite our sin. The gospel, remember, also is not just for this initially being made right with God. It fuels every bit of our Christian life, doesn't it? I realized quickly as I was preparing the sermon, I wouldn't be able to kind of go in detail through the whole of the passage. But as you look at those other blessings, it shows us this reality. It continues to show us this promise and this blessing. God knows that his people will continue to struggle with sin. We read right in, in, in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, especially uh, that Israel is around these pagan people. They struggle with their sin. And yet God is faithful over and over again, even when they're not. Again, that points us to the gospel, doesn't it? That although we're continued to be allured by the promises of the world, the promises of Christ keep coming to us over and over again. Trust in me. Don't rely on yourselves. You'll just mess up every time. I'll provide salvation, not because of you, but for you, despite of you. As we think about how we can apply these blessings, especially these blessings of Judah and of Joseph to our own lives. I think there's several things that we can think about. The first is that no matter how sinful you think you are, no matter what you have done in the past, no matter how too far gone you feel, Christ is there to redeem you. Simon reminded of this, of, of reminded us of this over and over again as we were taking the Lord's Supper. So helpful. If you're a Christian here this evening and you feel the weight of past sin, it's bearing down on you, find encouragement in the life of Judah. Look at God's grace towards Judah. This is one who was so overt and proud in his sin, and the Lord saw fit not only to redeem him, but to bless him with, with Christ, the blessing of the coming Christ. If Judah's story teaches us anything, it's that the gospel, that Christ, is not for perfect people. It's for sinners like you and like me. If you are a Christian and you're currently struggling with sin, Look to a passage like this. Look to God's promises. Know that fighting sin isn't about just pulling yourself up and, and swimming as hard as you can. It's not about trying really, really hard. It's about looking to Christ, looking to his goodness, his faithfulness. And you know what happens? When we do that, we live a transformed life. We live a changed life in light of the forgiveness that we've received.
Just a brief word too, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, this promise is for you. Like we said, there's no sin that could separate you from the love of Christ. These guys that we're reading about this evening were messed up people, and yet the Lord is so kind to redeem them and save them. If if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, there's lots around you. Turn to somebody next to you after the service. Ask them about the gospel. They'd be happy uh, to talk to you about that. Second, uh, let Christ's kingship comfort us in our struggles. Right? This promise of Christ that we're given to Judah, it's not, it's not uh, anything less than, than the promise of a king, isn't it? And we know as Christians, Christ is, is coming as king. He's king now as well. Again, one of the helpful things about this passage, right, is that's really honest with us about how broken the world is, about the realities of sin. That's the beauty, isn't it? That Christ comes not to a perfect world, but to a sinful world. And Christ the King puts everything right. As Steve is going to continually remind us in our sermon series in, in Revelation, Revelation and so many other parts of the Bible, they're there to comfort Christians with the reality that Christ is ruling and reigning. He's sovereign over the world. There could be all kinds of of challenges and hard things we could be going through. Let me just encourage you, amidst those things, Christ is king. He's coming back. That's a beautiful thing. Maybe you're struggling with finances. Heat is expensive. Maybe you, you genuinely don't know how to make ends meet and You just feel the the brokenness of the world. Take heart. Christ, the king, will make everything right. Maybe you look at the cultural turmoil of our day. The decline of the West. uh, The the divide of the nuclear family. You're really scared. Take heart. King Jesus is coming to make everything right. As Steve had mentioned this morning, maybe you're here in church, but you feel on the outskirts, you feel uh, it's a struggle to live the Christian life with other sinful Christians. Take heart. King Jesus is coming to make everything right. There's another aspect of this comfort that I don't want us to miss. We shouldn't just look to Christ's future coming and kind of just not care about the world now, right? And say, okay, the world stinks, but uh, I guess we'll just wait for Christ. Let's not fall into that temptation. Because in a very real sense, right, we experience the benefits of Christ's kingdom now, don't we? Remember, as we said earlier, as Christians, we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, into Christ's kingdom, Remember, Christ says, my kingdom's not of this world. We can rejoice that one day Christ will come to physically reign on the earth, but he also reigns now, doesn't he? In his people, in the church. One of the ways that Jesus gives us this comfort of the kingdom is what we're doing right now, this evening, in the life of the church, 
Churches are like little embassies of the kingdom of heaven, aren't they? Uh, if you've ever been in a foreign country, um, uh, that, you know, especially a, a strange kind of foreign country, uh, uh, comfort can be knowing where your embassy is. You have your passport. You know, you guys have your, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to be political. You have a passport uh, of some kind. I have a U.S. passport. Um, and, you know, the, the embassy that's there, you know, if I'm a U.S. citizen and I'm in a strange foreign country, let's say something goes down and, you know, I'm scared. What does the embassy do for me? It provides me safety. It provides me haven and familiarity. It's a breath of fresh air in the midst of a br- the broken, scary world around me. In the same way, when, when we gather together as a church, what we're seeking to do is kind of push out the distractions of the broken world around us, uniting around the gospel. And we, we do what? We've been doing in songs. We proclaim our allegiance to our king, to our kingdom, even though we're in a foreign land. Through faith in Christ, we can, we can enjoy so many benefits of Christ's kingship now, can't we? So again, amidst our own struggles, take heart because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king like Judah We can live a redeemed life, no matter what past sin we might have, no matter what our sin struggles might look like today. Like Joseph, we can live in the midst of a really broken world, not bowing to the pressures and letting them overtake us or causing us to retaliate in sin because we have Christ. These are precious truths that fuel our Christian walk, aren't they? That yes, sin is very real, both in the world around us, in our own lives. But take heart, Christian. Jesus is king. The promised one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just pray that we would worship you and love you as our king. Lord, we're thankful that you show your kingship and your death for us on the cross. Lord, would we place our faith in you? Lord, if anybody here is thinking they're too far gone for Christ, that their sin is too great, or that the world around them is so broken, Lord, would they look to Christ, the king? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to end with our final song, All Glory Be to Christ.
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Go in his peace.